Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Break Room. Break Room is a podcast by Black mental health professionals and a researcher for Black professionals with a mission to remind you that you matter you're valuable, and your wellness and joy are our priority for liberation. Okay, I'm Dr. Jide Bamashigbin. I'm a health psychologist, um, as well as a father of two, and I'm married to my wonderful wife. Happy to be with you today. Now, kick it over to our incredible co-host, Dr. Nikki. Hello, everyone. I am Dr. Nikki. I'm excited to be here, as always. Um, I am a licensed psychologist, psych pack credentialed in the state of Texas, which means a fancy term for saying I can do therapy virtually for folks in about 26 other states. Um, And I focus my practice on black women and couples, relational and sexual wellness. And then I also do racial equity consultation and training for small to mid-sized organizations. Uh, And I'm ready to get into it because today's conversation, I think will be interesting. It 100% will. Our topic for today uh, we're going to talk about some, how do I put this? We titled it New Yorker racism, but it's more <laughs> about like racism in the mainstream media. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'll give you a little, uh, a little, a little synopsis for our, for our listeners. Cool. And, then, and then, you know, we'll get to it. Okay. Um, so the New Yorker, it's a famous magazine. It's been around for, you know, a long time in the United States. They have some of the best, it's a very prestigious job to work at the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're 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 a good journalist if you if you get to work there. Um, so recently, I mean, not that recently. It's been a few months, but we're just getting to talk about it. Aaron Overbay, who was a journalist there, took on a research project combing through back issues of the New Yorker and started tabulating the race and gender of the people who wrote and edited the magazines. And what she found, almost none of the. Are you ready? Over forty thousand feature articles and reviews had been edited by a black person only a tiny fraction by black latino and asian american women okay wait over and the 40, history had been to, had not been like oh, okay. out of those 40,000 very few almost mm-hmm. none and a very small fraction had been done by black latino and asian american women and this is a magazine going back to 1925 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. so she posted those findings and uh, she was out of there, okay? <laughs> to, make, to, make, to make it clear, she, she don't work at the New Yorker no more. <laughs> Pregnant <Okay. it> up! <laughs> she, she don't, you know, she don't, she don't work at New Yorker no more. And not just that, so she went public with, you know, these mm-hmm, findings, mm-hmm. and literally, like, all these different media sites 
Gawker, other, you know, other, other, you know, media, media conglomerates, whatever, start writing these articles. Oh, who is this person writing this? Mm-hmm. Just what, what you would call a hit piece, mm-hmm. right? What you call a hit piece to honor about her, about what she has done, what she hasn't mm-hmm. done, what mm-hmm. she talks about racial, ethnic minority stuff, but she doesn't really care. Um, but the one good thing was she actually went on Twitter and refuted them piece by piece, right? She said, okay, so this article said, blah, 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 blah. They didn't do their basic. And once again, this is journalism, right? <laughs> right? right. They didn't do their basic fact checking because I could show you this email right here that says I was the chair of this. I participated in this. I led this. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? And then I'll tell you a little more. Well, so it's not shocking at all to me, right? Because if we just scope out to the the highest level, anything in this country that's considered elite or top tier is associated with whiteness, mm-hmm. uh, right? Like I've even heard people refer to Howard University as the Harvard of HBCUs, right? There's always this um, affiliation with whiteness as the standard. So that it's the New Yorker, right? And there's so much prestige um, and rigor and um, uh, elitism attached to just that as a as a literary journalistic outlet. It surprises me zero that they have not had. <laughs> it surprises me zero that they have not had more black and brown representation from like at any level of of uh, the production side. I'm sure they got plenty of black and brown folks in the admin side, uh, in the janitorial side, right? Anybody mm-hmm. that's in an assistant sort of role, I, I would guess that that's probably where their numbers, and uh, let's to be clear, I don't know that data. I have not looked at that data, but there's a general uh, pattern among uh, companies that have any prestige, any amount of um, uh, financial portfolio right like the closer you get to the top the whiter it's going to be and typically mm-hmm. also even the more male it's going to be right and journalism yep. has been a particularly gender gendered bias feel so that surprises me zero what is interesting to me is that my guess is her whiteness led her to believe that that data would be actionable Right. Like like there's a level of naivete that she had uh-huh. that like, well, surely once I put these numbers <laughs> in black and white, people will want to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was a that was a hard lesson to learn for her, I'm sure. <laughs> because because we know very well. Right. You, you know who knows that the New Yorker has very few black senior editors. The New Yorker. Make no mistake. <laughs> they know. <laughs> Quite you know clear. what I'm saying? <laughs> like the, the president and the whatever, they know they're in those meetings, in the senior leadership meetings every week. They know, right? And the, the and we have to really understand the impact of not having any black editors. Mm-hmm. Like, do we do we really for, for one of the most prestigious journalistic public prestigious with, with quotes? Yes. Because you can't see me. Uh, 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 <laughs> one of the most prestigious journalistic publications in the, in the country, mm-hmm. right? In the world, even, right? And For a substantial period of time, like my entire lifetime. It, it, since 1925. It's, it's going to be hitting its 100-year anniversary soon. Wow. You know? Mm-hmm. No senior Black editors or no Black editors. So what does that mean? It's just white thought going out. 
It's just white thought going out, looked at by white thought going out. Can I can't even imagine what it's like trying to be a black writer there, right? And having a white editor who doesn't understand what you're saying, doesn't understand the background you're coming from, doesn't understand anything about the black experience, but is trying to tell you, no, don't. Oh, maybe you shouldn't talk like that. Maybe you shouldn't say right. that. Oh, let's cut this part. Right. It's awful. In addition to like you know, and so what this comes down to typically is right. Um, it's presented as probably unconscious bias. Right. Like um, there's clearly some bias that is happening in the hiring process, in the selection process. Um, I bet there's even a pipeline issue. Right. So so what is the pedigree required for you to even get to the level of being considered to be an editor for The New Yorker? My guess is that there's probably not a a preponderance of black and brown folks um, that is even in that pipeline, right? So then it sort of gets more winnowed and winnowed. But I bet that they would, you know, as an organization, talk about the merits required, um, the credentials required to be high performing in an organization like that or to to produce the type of uh, literary content that they do, blah, blah, blah. And we, we know that's all coded language, right? We know yeah. that that's all proxy for upholding white standards and so it does let us know and we've seen other companies do this in other ways right with the walmart and the uh and the juneteenth ice cream right like clearly or then i know dove has been caught out there bad a number of times with um just bad racial implications for major marketing campaigns that they have done and that's because there's not a person with any connection to blackness and and with connection to blackness, with authority, right. respected, with power, with influence in those rooms. So, right. yes, we it's a, almost 100 years of, what is that, 97 years of, of, of biased journalism in that way, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Big she time. left, she got fired summarily, G-Day? She got, she got, she got fired, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Like shortly after, because she posted, so she did like that analysis and posted it on Twitter. And I guess she didn't get approval to post it on Twitter, but she had it there. And that makes me wonder what's the rest of the backstory. I'm sure it's I'm like it could probably be a, a mini series or nothing else. Because I'm sure, I mean, who would give up their job at the New Yorker if they had gotten there? So I'm guessing she probably wasn't given much option, or she felt very passionately about the findings and took to Twitter. Um, Are there like whistleblower laws that she could be like, I wonder, I don't know all the details around that because I remember when homegirl came out about um, Facebook meta Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. last year and Mm -hmm. uh, she was a whistleblower and she, she kept her job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think on some level, she it's not quite it's not quite whistleblowing you know like just showing the diversity mm-hmm. statistic because they can and, and also and here's what happened they always will try to say well she wasn't fired because of that she was fired because of other mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. right and it's always oh that oh what is that other stuff but you know as what as i do right that's just the cover mm-hmm. You know they're they're making up the the story as as they go along, right? They're oh, I I, I am intimately familiar with how that process works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was fired for a pattern of conduct 
that was considered disruptive to the operation mm-hmm. of the magazine. Of course and it that was. undermined the journalistic ethics of the magazine. Of course, because she was trying to tell some truths that were uncomfortable, I, I, clearly. Always. And, you know, I want to get back to your point about her thinking her whiteness would protect her. So on some level, like, I'm like, you know, you did you did the right thing, actually, like by pointing out and just giving it out to the world and letting you know, hey, y'all, like this place racist. You know, I want you to know this place racist. <laughs> right. They, they don't care. That's a, that's strong. But also she's received like so much support and so much whatever types of ways that, you know, if me or you tried to talk about racism in our workplaces. Right. Mm-hmm. Granted, she works at the New Yorker. So I want to admit that it is the New Yorker. Right. But I've worked at huge places. I've, I've been I've been in I've, I've, I have worked at the the number one applied to university in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. but, you know, I say, oh, well, racism happened. Shoot. Shoot. Fly, don't bother me. You know, don't say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's always this fine line that most black and brown folks have to walk in the workplace of. How much do I tolerate for the sake of being able to be here to continue to do my job, make my make a living, um, to continue to engage in my own career, professional development and still show up authentically to speak truth to power, so to speak. But we also know uh there's a there's a level of threat that sort of sits with that right because sometimes even naming the experience is problematic enough it's seen as threatening it's seen as contentious um and it can warrant a lot of backlash you know and then you sort of get you you can still sort of get relegated to being uh what do they call it like um having your voice diminished overall because they'll be like, oh, well, you know, G-Day's always playing the race card. Well, you know, right. Nikki's so sensitive about race. You can't say this around her or we, you know, you become that person. And so that's even, even your calling out racial inequitable practices can be used against you all under the beautiful framework that is systemic racism. Like it's always working for itself. Um, mm-hmm. It's always upholding itself. So I'd just like to give our listeners just a a little more context into these numbers. Okay. Okay. This is the New Yorker. Between 1990 and 2020, only 3.6% of the book reviews published in the magazine were by Black critics or writers. Less than 1% were by Indian American writers. 12, not 12%, 12 were by Asian Americans and seven were by Latinx writers. 28% 28% were women. Wow. That you could count them. During the same period, zero film reviews, zero art reviews, zero classical music reviews by writers of color. Mm-hmm. By 2020, it had only published four book reviews by black women ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Then once again, I need I can't I can't stress this enough. <laughs> this has been around for 97 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this and, is what we call cultural racism. Like like this is how deeply we could definitely say anti-blackness, but like around sort of white elitism and things attached to whiteness as cultural artifacts get codified as being 
the standard, right? Um, mm-hmm. Whenever you say the classics or classical music, it's not re- referring to a djembe. Like it's not gonna be, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's not, it's not, that, that's not what comes to mind, right? It's all European. It's all white, right? Um, did you say a djembe? I did say a djembe. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Your point is right. I just have to acknowledge that you just said that. But Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. It's going to be attached to a European instrument, a European style of com- uh, composition of music. Like we've named these things to represent who and what has access to being uh, revered, to being held as the standard and the default. So, uh, you know, it's like... Um, when I used to back in the day when we had bookstores <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I've always been an avid fiction reader and I would go in a bookstore and in the quote unquote African-American section, they would have everything from roots to like an encyclopedia, like anything that had anything to do with blackness. Tangentially was, even. <laughs> in one space. And I'm like, Octavia Butler is a science fiction writer. She's black, but she's a science fiction writer. She's won Hugo Awards for her writing, but she's over here black, in the same space section. as like um uh oh Terry McMillan. Like, no disrespect <laughs> to Terry McMillan, but boo boo, y'all not on the same right. level. Like y'all are doing right, very right, different right, things, right? right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so of course it's it, I mean, that those sort of ideas and concepts that you could evaluate and have a standard of excellence around any uh, art artifact from about uh, centering a racial ethnic group that is of the global majority. That's not white folks, right? Just would mm-hmm. not even come into comprehension for them. It, like that surprises me zero. I am a, and, and then I think we have to think uh, on the other side too, about the structures that facilitate that. Right. Yeah. Because uh, I was listening to. Oh, I was listening to an interview with Gina Prince Bythewood yeah. and um, they were asking Who directed her about love and basketball, a black classic and was not given. I, I have to say this every time and was not given the opportunity to direct another movie for a decade for a decade, okay? a decade. And, and that was her point. Her point was like, yes, we have seen an increase of. Black films, we've seen an increase of Black actors in leading roles. We have seen more variety in the types of Black films that can be produced. And she said, and still, the major production houses will say, well, we already did like two Black films for the year. Wow, you know, what do we need to do another one, right? So mm-hmm. there's a, there, this goes back to the pipeline issue. So yes, and- we, we, we can hold the New Yorker accountable. And we also want to look at the broader structure and say, it probably has only been in the last 30 to 50 years. I'm, and I'm being generous that there's mm-hmm. been a significant amount of uh, art by folks of color about yep. folks of color's experience that has even made it to the mainstream Yep, that could even be considered. Right. Um, and we know we come on, let's have, we in the break room, we in the break room today. <laughs> we know black people just started getting real good movies. Like, you know, there was a period of time where we would get a movie. And yeah. if, if it wasn't about like, uh, gang banging or, or 
criminality we had like the, a spoof or like a comedy like that would be whole, it the whole 1990s <laughs> we had the Wayans family okay it's and then they gave us Sanaa Lathan, Morris Chestnut me along in them in varying combinations and that was it like Tay Diggs okay we're gonna do Tay Diggs and Tay Diggs don't forget about okay, him no, we're gonna use Lorenz Tay and so and so this time right but that, that that was it it was just like okay we got these 10 people yeah we don't, we don't need anybody else we don't need anybody and they all followed a pretty I mean they were all pretty much rom-coms right yeah, or straight up mm-hmm. spoofs so we are really just getting to a place where I want somebody to fact check me on this and then tweet at us. But I remember going to see, um, oh, my mind just went blank. Uh, mama, you know, the song, the boys in it. Yes. And I remember going to see soul food and I was like, we have like a black drama. Like it just, it's about the dynamics of this family. Yeah. And it's a story yeah. that is about, the, the you know the challenges of caring intergenerational I was like this feels very novel and different and yep. that's firmly firmly in the 90s right yep so I I don't give the New Yorker a pass by any means whatsoever but I think it is reflective of, of a broader mm-hmm. uh, New York is not special no it's not <laughs> hey they're, they're not, not any special. more special or any more racist than anybody else it's true yes so and then didn't the woman, um, what's her name? G-Day song. Stop calling her the woman. Aaron, Aaron Overbay. Aaron Overbay. Overbay. Um, she, and then she got all this backlash from other publications, right? Mm-hmm. So they kind of, the, the, the journalist, journalism. They circled the wagons. Sector, yep. That's what I was just about to they say. They closed the ranks. Mm-hmm. Because if you call into legitimacy, the New Yorker, you're calling everything into legitimacy and white people can't have that. <laughs> they like don't come over here with your statistics. <laughs> mm-hmm. Are you trying to imply that I didn't get this because of because of my uh you know effort? Yeah, it's because your dad works there. So, you know, even one of the big articles that somebody wrote, her her dad literally works for the New Yorker. And it's like and she didn't put that in the article, right? Mm. So even it's just the ways that and, and, and these are the same people who claim that we're so journalistic, we know journalistic ethics, we created it, right? But as soon as it's convenient Throw, throw it out the window. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that th- this whole conversation to me is um, why we, why I continue to sort of hold the belief that the systems and structures we have in place are not redeemable, that they have to be completely overhauled because they just consistently um, reinforce each other on the micro and macro levels over and over and over again. So where is the way up and out for I mean, Audrey Lord writers said of best. color, um, which is such a stupid phrasing writers of color, writers um, of color. <laughs> for there to be a more holistic, realistic reflection of the arts across dimensions of race and ethnicity mm-hmm. in, in other spaces, right? Like, those folks need more patrons. We need to value that work. We need to see that work as being rigorous, uh, prestigious. Uh, we need to we need to give opportunity for there to be more variation. That's the other thing. Even if you get a black film made or you write a black book or you do the thing, baby, if it's not successful, if it doesn't punch through the roof with the numbers expected to produce, that makes it that much more difficult for the folks come come behind us, right? Yeah. Whereas 
you know, there's a movie like Zoolander that exists or like, <laughs> like. Hey, I love Zoolander. I don't know if you're trying to say Zoolander's not good. It's but, not. It's <laughs> there, there's lots of other movies to choose for your example. Because <laughs> <laughs> I watched it and I'm like, this is the most ridiculous thing. Oh man, <laughs> I love you so. And your point is well taken. I won't. I won't stand a Zoolander slander, but I, your point is well, well, thank you, well taken. Thank you very much. We, we do have to also be twice as hard to for half. Twice as hard for half is good. My God, you know. That's that. That's what it means to be black. I'm you so know? sick of it. I am yeah. so sick of it. So, well, so, you know, I hope she we'll continues continue to do some truth telling, right? Like, you know, uh, so you know, I love the phrasing that if if your allyship doesn't meet the level of John Brown, I'm not interested, right? And so yep. she, she, I would say she's John Brown status, but she she got in the stratosphere. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to see what she continues to do with this platform. What what personal lessons did she learn? What is she going to do next? Who one else of, can she hold accountable? Most, one of the most important things white people can do is put the information out there so we don't think we're... Because also, they, they, they gaslight us. You know what I'm saying? And to be like, no, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. But there's white people in the room who know when somebody's being racist. Right, you know, because they're in the room when the decisions are being made. <laughs> you know, you know. So and, at least if you can just speak to us the after the meeting, and because they come to us after the meeting to say, "Oh my God, that was so horrible when Carol said mm-hmm. that." Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you were there. Oh, you noted it as well, but yet you they remained know. silent. They know what you're coming to me for. I know what happened. I was there. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. aimed at me. Yep, they know. So you know. The question is, what you going to do with the information? What will you do differently? That, and that's the question that white people need to answer for themselves. You Where know, is all the anti-racism classes and certificates that came out in 2020? Y'all, did y'all put them in the drawer? They kept collecting dust? <laughs> <laughs> y'all better dust them all and get back to it. You're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> so, you know, let's, uh, let's end the conversation there. Oh, we thank you all for joining us here in the break room again yep. this week. We love to engage with our listeners. So make sure you tweet at us at the break room. Uh, and then we also have, I always get this wrong, Gina, living dash corporate at the break room at the living dash corporate.com. I'm the worst at it. I'm the worst at it. But if you want to um, ever reach out to us, we would love to get some listener mail, any topics you want us for us, want for us to cover questions you want for us to address we are more than happy to do so until next time peace Till next time have a good one